Coming to you live from the land of chainsaws and weed whackers, it's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode number 79, The Second to Last Supper. In this episode, we've got a monster movie review, connected pulp characters, and the GM's toolkit. So now, let's get things started. Hello there, everybody. It is I, Doc Cross, your host, and I want to welcome you all back to the podcast. I hope you had a good week. Everything around here is going pretty well. The weather's been pretty nice. As I record this, we had rain a few days ago. It rained like hell, actually, about an inch, maybe a little more. But now it's sunny and dry and probably going to stay that way for quite some time. Anyway, we are back with episode 79, and I would just like to say to everyone that when you are hearing this, the Doclopedia Death March is up and running on the blog. Now, you folks listening on the podcast, of course, are going to be, I don't know, what, six weeks ahead, something like that. So you get to hear all the good stuff way in advance, but if you have friends who do not support the podcast or even listen to it, but they want to read some interesting and strange stuff, just send them over to the blog and they can check it out. Of course, they're only seeing it one entry per day, whereas you get a whole week's every Monday. But that's what they get for not paying any money to me. And speaking of the people who pay money to listen to this podcast and support it and support the blog, I want to thank you so very much, my wonderful, good-looking, and highly intelligent patrons. So thank you, Peter. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, James. And thank you, Kevin. You guys are swell, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. So as we do every other Monday on this podcast, we have a monster movie review. And this is one of my favorite Hammer films of all time. It's not a Dracula movie. It's not a Frankenstein movie. It's not a mummy movie. It's not one of their vampire movies with tits and butts and things in it. No. It is a straight-up horror film with a monster. It was made in 1966. And along with the one I reviewed last time, The Gorgon, this is one of my favorite British Victorian-era horror flicks. And this one's called The Reptile. It was directed by John Grilling. It starred Ray Barrettis as Harry Spaulding. It starred Jennifer Daniel as Valerie Spaulding. Michael Ripper as Tom Bailey. Noel Willman as Dr. Franklin. And Jacqueline Pierce as Anna Franklin. There are other people in the movie, but those are the only ones you really need to know about. Now, the plot summary, and I'm going to try and keep it short this time without going too much into the overall plot. So, in the very early 20th century, in the fictional village of Clagmore Heath in Cornwall, several locals are dying from what is deemed to be the Black Death, except not the Black Plague. Harry Spaulding inherits his late brother Charles' cottage and arrives with his new bride, Valerie. The inhabitants of the village keep clear of the newly arrived couple 
and only the publican, Tom Bailey, befriends them. This is very common in these sort of movies. Is Everybody in town is like, ooh, new people. That's because that's how it happens in real life in small towns all over the world. Anyway, Tom explains that the hostility exhibited by the townspeople is a result of many mysterious deaths in the community. Yeah, like it's their fault. The sinister Dr. Franklin, the owner of the nearby well house, is the only resident in the vicinity of the cottage, and he lives with his daughter, Anna, who he treats cruelly and with contempt, and she is attended by a silent melee servant. Ooh, a silent servant from a foreign land. You know he's got to be up to something, right? Hoping to learn something about the deaths, Harry invites the local eccentric, Mad Peter, home for dinner. Because, you know, that's the sort of thing you do, right? After warning them that their lives are in danger, Peter quickly departs, only to return later that evening with his face blackened and swollen before dying. The Spaldings attempt to alert Franklin, but he arrogantly states that Peter's death is not his concern, explaining that he is a doctor of divinity, not a surgeon. Now, I'm not going to give away any more of the plot, but people die, stuff happens, bodies get dug up, and yes, there is a reptilian creature, humanoid, killing people. Who, what, how, why? I'll let you watch the movie and see all of that. This movie does a pretty good job of building things up. It uh, has a lot of atmosphere. The creature is very well done. The makeup and everything. You don't see it for a whole lot of the movie up close, but you do finally get to see it for quite a bit at the end of the movie. Uh, the whole thing is just very well done. And... I really enjoyed this. I saw it when I was a kid. I've watched it at least once or twice per decade since then. I saw it, oh, about six months ago, I think, on uh, Turner Classic Movies, actually. And I believe I've got it recorded on our DVR. So I may watch it again real soon. Now, this production was filmed back-to-back with another movie that's not too bad either, called The Plague of the Zombies. And it used many of the same sets, including exterior shots on the grounds of Oakley Court near Bray's, Berkshire, which you see at the very end of this movie. And Jacqueline Pierce and Michael Ripper appeared in both films. The cottage used in the film was located in Brentmore Road, West End, Woking, Surrey. The Heathland shots were of West End and Chobham Common. And the railroad station glimpsed briefly near the beginning of the film was Loudwater Railway Station. I'm sure that means a lot to people who live in England, but to us Americans, probably not so much. As documented in books on Hammer Films history, the actor who had to wear the reptile makeup suffered from claustrophobia, so they really, really hated wearing it. And after this film, they vowed never to wear creature makeup in any future acting project. And I don't blame them. The film was released in some markets on a double feature with Rasputin the Mad Monk, which is not so great a film, 
and a novelization of the film was written by John Burke as part of his 1967 book, The Second Hammer Horror Film Omnibus. And I wish I could own that, but as far as I've been able to find out, it's pretty hard to find. So that's The Reptile. Like I say, it's a good movie. It's creepy. It's atmospheric. Um, you you got characters you can hate. You've got characters you can pity. You've got characters you can wonder, what the fuck? Um, it's just a good movie, and I highly recommend you see it. I am pretty sure it's on YouTube, but like I said, it pops up every so often on um, Turner Classic Movies, especially if they do any sort of Hammer film thing where sometimes they do them for a month and stuff like that and sometimes it just pops up amongst other horror movies so there you go the reptile check it out all right folks we now come to connected pulp characters and the two we have this time around are a good person and a bad person the good person is whitney farrell she is a crusading reporter and sort of a daredevil, really, who goes after a story like a dog goes after a bone. She wants it. She's going to get it. Whitney is 25 years old. She is pretty good looking. She's quite athletic. And she is a thorn in the side of most of the heroes that she can be a thorn in the side of. The Doc Savage types, the the people who are known to the public. She is also a little bit of a thorn in the side to any masked heroes you may have in your game, the shadow types or the spider types, because she's always poking around after them. But because she does so much good with the reporting, exposing evil, and even sometimes finding things out that she you know, prints and says, well, maybe the shadow should look into this, they tolerate her. Whitney works for the major newspaper in your city. And she is a good source of both finding things out and relaying them to your heroes. Uh, she can be the person who gets kidnapped and needs to be rescued. She can be the person who just turns up in time to save your characters when they're stuck in a death trap and they can't figure out how to get out. She's highly useful and you should use her and maybe create a few more just like her. The next character we have is tied back to the previous two characters, the two thugs I talked about last time. And his name is Dr. Bogenbroom. And yes, if you're a fan of Jethro Tull, you realize that Dr. Bogenbroom is the title of a song by Jethro Tull. Now, I've been using Dr. Bogenbroom as a name for a mad scientist for a long time, probably 30 years. So I use him. I have also used Dr. Wu from the Steely Dan song. I've used the Disco Strangler from the Eagles song. So yeah, if there's a doctor or a named character in a song, I might very well have used them. But getting back to Dr. Bogenbroom. His specialty, of course, is being a mad scientist, and his big specialty is combining plant and animal DNA to create some hideous damn thing that's neither plant nor animal, 
which he then tries to use to take over the city, extort money, you know, rule the world, whatever you want him to be doing. Or maybe he's just killing people he doesn't like. Or maybe he creates these creatures and then they get loose and he just says, yep, well, I got loose, but I'll try better next time. Like I say, he employs thugs. He has quite a number of assistants. He can be found anywhere from a deserted building on the edge of town all the way out to a typical James Bondian fortress on a volcanic island, you know, castle in the desert, wherever. Dr. Bogenbroom's out there. He is absolutely dedicated to science. He does not particularly think of himself as evil, but he does think of anybody who's not as brilliant as he is as being a dullard and beneath his paying attention to. That's why he sends the thugs to deal with them. If the heroes in your campaign are like Doc Savage and his crew, very intelligent, top of their game, then Bogenbroom will show them the respect of trying to kill them cleanly, or he might put them in a very fancy death trap, explain his whole motivation and what he's up to, and then walk away figuring they're going to die. And, of course, they probably won't, unless you're a very bad DM. Anyway, that is Whitney Farrell and Dr. Bogenbroom, a couple of useful characters for your pulp campaign. And in two weeks, we'll be back with two more. And now, folks, we are at GM's Toolkit. And this one is pretty personal to me. And when this episode goes up, it's something I'm going to have to really start thinking about dealing with. And our subject is ending a campaign and, more importantly, having a group break up. Now, sometimes there are unavoidable reasons for why your group is breaking up. These can range all the way from somebody dying to somebody having a complete change of lifestyle or moving away. That's probably one of the most common ones. Or, you know, other things like, you know, I had a guy find religion once and suddenly playing D&D wasn't on his agenda. Uh, I also have had people get significant others who didn't want them playing D&D or didn't want them doing anything that they weren't involved in. Those relationships usually didn't last very long. What's happening with me is that out of the four players in my group, two of them are moving away in June to go live in New Mexico where they hope to retire. So that's half my gaming group going to be gone. And we are finishing up the big story arc we've been playing for five years. Possibly by the time this comes out, we will have done that. And I will talk about that at some point. So that's one thing that can end a group, is people moving away. And there are other things that can happen to end a group or end a a session or a campaign, one of the things would be that a GM wants to run another RPG and people say, nope, don't want to play that. That's fine. Sometimes everybody wants a break. I have had most of my campaigns end like that and very often they end in the middle or sometimes just after they've started, really. But when you have to end a group, when a group has to break up, Hopefully it's not because of animosity, although that does happen too. 
And hopefully you can just say, okay, I'm sorry you got to go. We'll miss you. And then, of course, you have to find new players, and I've already covered that. But, yeah, ending a group can be emotionally hard. It can be frustrating as hell if it happens in the middle of your game. Fortunately, this one will happen after the entire story arc has gone by, and it really will be time for the characters to retire, at least as far as the story and the world we were talking about and playing in for so long. This is really not very often that your group and your story will end like this, where you have time to actually end it and fade everything out and you know wish everybody goodbye. So that's it. That's what I'm going to have to deal with. That's what all GMs have to deal with sooner or later, is losing players, having a group break up, stuff like that. And I hope if it happens to you, you will remember that, well, stuff happens in life that's not gaming, so we have to deal with that. And, of course, you have to remember that in this modern future world of ours, just because players move away doesn't mean they have to leave the group. So there is the option of playing remotely, playing online, uh, using one of the virtual tabletops or something. I'm not a big fan of playing online. Even the pandemic did not make me love that. I think they are still a few years away from having online environments that I like playing in. I know they are a long way away from having online die rollers that I like. But it's an option if your group's going to break up. If the people can keep on playing. So anyway, that's it. The GM's Toolkit on ending a group and why it might happen. And I will have a new toolkit for you in a couple of weeks. Okay, folks, we are at the end of the program, and I want to thank you all for listening. It's nice of you to do that, and you should maybe tell your friends about the podcast if you get a chance. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docaverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail, and I will hear about it quite quickly. And if you're listening on the Patreon page, just type in a comment and I will get that in an email and it'll be on the site right there. So that'll get done quick. If you like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts weeks before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross and sign up for as little as a buck a month. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned, and we will cut a deal. Our music was Caipirinha in Hawaii by Carmen Maria and Edu Espinal off of the Free Music Archives. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, of course, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I will see you next time, folks, and until then, live long and prosper.